Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Welcome to Prime Video's culture-rated collection. This is the place where black is the main character, where we don't jump through hoops just to hear our voice and can fall in love with illuminating documentaries like Giannis' The Marvelous Journey. I'm just a hard worker that's trying to survive. Enjoy the animated series, The Second Best Hospital in the Galaxy. All doctors report immediately. Where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Welcome home, baby. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. I want my music to unify people. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop. This is the cleanest police car I've ever been in in my life. And BMF. You're about to take over the whole nation. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello, out there. Bad things happen to bad people. It's true. But evil doesn't discriminate. If it lays an eye on you and likes what it sees, welcome to the stalking phase. If upon closer inspection it decides that it loves what it sees, Well, then, unfortunately, it's only a matter of time before an attempt will be made to take from you. Often, it's not entirely obvious that we've been intruded upon, as the method and intensity of attack can vary, depending on what and how much a predator wants. If you're lucky, it will simply be your attention, and what they'll steal as a result is your time, something we rarely consider as being ours until it's no longer up to us, how it's spent. Speaking of spent, perhaps it's money that they manage to separate from you in the form of a loan that they'll repay with kind words, compliments, a sense of charity, but never with cash. Bad people aren't always obviously so, but there is a way to expose them, to decipher their actions. Just ask yourself if you'd be comfortable behaving as the person in question behaves. This strips away the charm. Charm being by far a con's most valuable tool. Teenagers are conned so easily, charmed so simply. Treat a teen with an ounce of respect as an adult and they are eating out of the palm of your hand. It's terrifying how long it takes for teenagers to wise up to the ways of bad people, evil people. No amount of preparation can protect them from a motivated predator. The reality is that if someone wants them bad enough, they'll likely find a way to get them. And the worst of it is that the more a youngster is sheltered from uncomfortable realities, the less they'll be prepared when a wolf spots them alone. Sometimes all it takes is the flash of teeth, a sneer, anything that resembles a smile. A good kid will morph a threat into a warm gesture and happily walk into the mouth of a monster in return for not having to face the cold truth that monsters despite what they've been told, are in fact 
very, very real. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 016, Little Red Wallet. Berkeley, California is situated on the east shore of the San Francisco Bay. It's a picturesque college town known today for being the most liberal city in the U.S. A decade after the events to be recounted here, Berkeley was the epicenter of the counterculture movement, home to hippies and anarchists who flocked to the Bay Area from around the world. But before free love and bell-bottoms gave this California city an identity that lasts even still, it was just another place in the U.S., where families raised children and worked toward the American dream. Even then, it was a beautiful city, its air fragrant with wild poppy and eucalyptus. Yet the dream for some here would melt into wickedness. Even the best home, the best grades, the best life couldn't save at least one little girl from something so big, so bad. A girl who wanted a pet parakeet carried a picture of her poodle hoagie next to photos of her classmates in her little red wallet. The walk home from Willard Junior High School for 14-year-old Stephanie Bryan was a 25-minute trek along a mile-and-a-half route. At the Berkeley Tennis Club, Stephanie would cut through the parking lot of the upscale Hotel Claremont and walk the final six minutes to the family home on Alvarado Avenue. The Bryans lived in a bi-level, mission-style home with stairs that led from the street to the front door. Two balconies overlooked the sloping driveway, just deep enough for two cars. The small front yard was landscaped in Baltic ivy. A large, gnarly maple tree took center stage. Young voices echoed inside these walls. Stephanie was the eldest of Dr. Charles and Mary Bryan's five children. In the spring of 1955, the family had lived in the Bay Area just two years, coming to Berkeley from New England, where the Bryan children had been born. Theirs was the upper-middle-class existence befitting the family of a prominent radiologist. While such a station in life could have left a pretty, budding teenager feeling entitled, Stephanie showed no such attitude. Shy, studious, well-behaved, and practical, she'd just been awarded a gold pin for her good grades. She was devoted to ballet and piano, and though she was embarking on her second year as a teenager, she hadn't yet shown signs of being boy crazy. In the mornings, Dr. Bryan would drive Stephanie and her 12-year-old sister to their middle school. In the afternoon, when classes let out, Stephanie would sometimes walk home with her sister, meeting their mother halfway when Mrs. Bryan, doctor-turned-stay-at-home mom, could get away. And sometimes, Steffi and friend Mary Ann Stewart would make the walk together, parting at the Hotel Claremont parking lot. On this day, Thursday, April 28, 1955, Steffi and Mary Ann agreed to do just that. Just after 3.15 p.m., the ninth graders, each dressed nearly identical in saddle shoes and a pleated skirt shaped by a petticoat, headed out under cloudy skies that would later turn to rain, a detail that would much later help prosecutors form a timeline. Stephanie's complete outfit on her last day was a turquoise skirt with two petticoats, a white sweater covered by a blue cardigan, bobby socks, and brown and white saddle shoes. Tidy. Perfectly pressed. Pretty. Like her. Her wavy hair was loose. Her hazel eyes sparkled behind blue-rimmed glasses. Just beneath her nose was a patch of eczema that probably worried the sweet teenager more than it should have. That unflattering skin condition would find its way onto missing posters, along with her height, five feet two inches tall, and her weight of 102 pounds. There would be three stops on this walk home before Steffi and Mary Ann's pass separated forever. First, the girls hopped into the public library two blocks from the school. Stephanie checked out two books, Sue Barton's Staff Nurse and Two's Company. She now carried these along with her red purse and school books. The girls then stopped in a pet store where, producing her red wallet, Steffi pulled out a quarter to pay for a booklet on parakeets. 
The final unplanned stop on this final unholy day was at a bakery. Quite often, Stephanie would visit Pring's Donuts, just 160 feet from the middle school. But on this day, she visited a different shop, long enough for each girl to buy a treat. At 4 p.m., outside the Berkeley Tennis Club at the edge of the hotel complex, the friends said their goodbyes. Marianne headed to her tennis lesson as Stephanie continued onto the hotel grounds. She should have made her way to the east side of the lot and then beneath a canopy of eucalyptus trees. But Steffi never made onto that pretty walking path that led to her home on Alvarado Avenue. What happened next is only supposition. A version two years later from a jailhouse informant suggested a former cellmate had made a passing acquaintance with Steffi at Pring's Donuts, half a block from her school. The informant said his cellmate pulled alongside Steffi as she made her way home. Excuse me, young lady. Could you tell me where Alvarado Avenue is? I have a delivery here. The wolf may have lied, knowing full well Alvarado to be where the girl lived, because he'd followed her before. Steffi maybe giggled, <laughs> saying that that was where she lived, at ease upon recognizing the friendly man from the donut shop. A flash of the teeth was then all it took. As Steffi climbed into the mouth of a monster, her mother, Mary Bryan, was at home just up the hill with three-year-old Beatrice and eight-year-old Estelle. Mary noted the clock as 11-year-old Rutledge walked in, and shortly thereafter, Cheryl, 12. The attentive mother expected Stephanie to arrive at any moment. So routine was the activity, she was likely unaware she was even expecting. When Steffi still hadn't shown by 4.30 p.m., Mary began to wonder. Twenty minutes later, that wonder was swallowed by worry. She called her daughter's friends, asking if anyone had seen her. They had not. Then Mrs. Bryan called the school, but with classes having ended more than an hour earlier, there was no answer in the office. It would be another hour before someone could keep an eye on the children so Mrs. Bryan could leave the house to look for her girl. After retracing Steffi's route, checking the school, then driving to her husband's office at the hospital, the Bryans called police about 6.30 p.m. Inexplicably, and not the way many missing person stories start out, police took the Bryans seriously from the get-go. Perhaps it was a perk of having doctor before their name. Officers swarmed the area and helped the parents look. Dr. Bryan and his next oldest daughter, Cheryl, checked the hotel grounds and school again. They walked too many times inside that canopied path as a light rain fell. The hunt continued past midnight and an hour into Dr. Bryan's 43rd birthday before police decided it was too dark to continue. They promised to resume in the morning. Paralyzed by fear, the Bryan family attempted sleep, a difficult task considering the waking nightmare Stephanie's disappearance had thrown them into. At daybreak and as Robbins began to sing, unaware of the unfolding horror, the worst of it for Steffi already revealed. A battalion of police converged on the neighborhood surrounding the Hotel Claremont. A house-to-house -house search was undertaken. Known sex offenders were contacted. Stephanie's friends and teachers were interviewed. The hours turned into days of police looking in every basement, backyard, and clump of trees in the area. They searched both well-to-do homes and rugged, sparsely inhabited canyons and hills. They thought they had a break albeit a gruesome one, when they found a body inside an ivy-covered section of concrete culvert. But that unfortunate soul was a homeless woman, who died of natural causes. Despite the best efforts, and they were the best efforts, they found no hide nor hair of precious Stephanie. It wasn't long before the San Francisco Examiner got wind of the story and contacted the family. Later, Stephanie's father, Dr. Bryan, told a reporter, I am definitely convinced that Stephanie has been kidnapped. I don't know how or what happened, but it has to be kidnapping. She would not leave voluntarily. The first of hundreds of articles to consume newsprint across the nation featured a large photograph of Stephanie Bryan, her head slightly cocked, a sweet half-smile on her full lips, her dark hair and waves framing her face. Though the photo was black and white, it is easy to imagine her hazel eyes. By the time the story hit newsstands, 
The Bryants had already had their hopes dashed by a hoax. On what was their first full day without their firstborn, they received a call demanding $5,000 ransom in exchange for their daughter. The voice told the father to not contact police. The doctor said he wouldn't, but he did. When he went to West Oakland for the rendezvous, police moved in and arrested a former mental hospital patient who was quickly ruled out as a suspect. A second ransom demand days later would also end in arrest. That person, too, was proved a hoaxer. The fear that washes over every parent who's ever lost sight of their child for even a moment. Well, the Bryans would be suspended in that terror for an eternity. Some 30 minutes after Steffi said goodbye to her friend in the hotel parking lot, three hours before the 14-year-old was reported missing, motorists 15 minutes north on Mount Diablo Boulevard witnessed a gray sedan veer off the road and slam on its brakes, creating a cloud of dust. A young girl in the back seat was clawing at the window, screaming. The driver was turned around, beating on the girl and pulling her away from the door. One passing couple went to the next intersection and told a highway patrolman what they'd seen. The trooper drove back to the spot but found nothing. In another car, a woman urged her husband to turn around. The husband did as directed, but the nightmare scene had evaporated by then. A third witness tried to stop but was pinned in by traffic. As soon as she could pull off the road, she hailed two men and begged them to intervene. Eight months later, she would recount. I asked them to go back and help the child that was getting beat up. If those men went back, she never knew. Eight motorists came forward the day after Stephanie's disappearance, some swearing the girl in the car looked like her. Others were unsure it was the same face they saw in the newspaper, noting bitterly, it's hard to tell what someone really looks like when their mouth is wide open, in terror. But what they saw, a man beating a girl in the back seat, Varied, not at all. Most described the man in the same way. About 30 years old, slight build, with a receding hairline. Then, four days later, as the hills and homes around the Hotel Claremont still buzzed with searchers, David Tyree was 20 minutes north of Mount Diablo Boulevard driving his son to school on Franklin Canyon Road when he pulled over to take a leak. Lying just off the asphalt, he spotted a book. Although it had rained in the area the two days prior, the paper cover was only damp with dew. Tyree handed it to his son when he got back in the car. The boy ripped off the moist cover and sent it fluttering at the window. At school, he put the book in his locker, where it remained for a week. That was until he noticed the name in the cover matched the name on lips across Northern California. Stephanie Bryan. The discovery spurred additional interest prompted searchers to focus on the area, but the hunt there would come up empty too. This would be the last burst of news in a case that had captivated headlines for two weeks. Then the coverage all but stopped. How Stephanie's family was surviving during this time is lost to the ages. From the witness stand the following November, Mary Bryan, her spirit dulled by a bitter loss, offered a window into what life was like in the Bryan home at that time. From the time she disappeared... Until last week, the children have been staying together in one room, sleeping on the floor. Two and a half months after Steffi's disappearance, a hairdresser named Georgia Abbott bound down the stairs into the basement of her Alameda rental home. The 33-year-old wife and mother of four-year-old Chris was on the hunt for a hat to wear to an event she would attend. Upstairs, her husband Burton, known as Bud, was pan-frying steaks. Otto Desmond the husband of George's boss at the salon, was keeping Bud company. Though Otto wasn't a regular visitor, he'd stop by on this day because George's picture was in the paper announcing the upcoming event. Bud, an unemployed full-time accounting student, fancied himself quite the chef and did much of the cooking in the home. He thought nothing of his wife standing on her feet all day long to bring home the bacon. Bud, 27, stood 5 feet 8 inches tall and was sickly thin. He couldn't really work. Have some sympathy for Christ's sake. Bud was still recovering from surgery, though it had been four years ago when doctors removed the top portion of his lung and 
several ribs to combat tuberculosis. Bud claimed he contracted the infection three months into his military service. It was at the hospital where he'd met Georgia, who also was being treated for TB, that she contracted while a member of the Women's Army Air Corps. A love affair blossomed in the sick ward, years before a sick affair burst in a damnable mind. Georgia wasn't in the basement long before she pulled a cardboard box of old clothes from a shelf and dug through it. If she ever found the hat she was looking for, we will never know. But what she did find in that Pandora's box was worse than a curse. What she found meant that the curse had already been unleashed. In a flash, an excited Georgia appeared back upstairs, calling her husband by his last name, which Otto Desmond, their guest, found odd. Abbott, isn't this the girl missing in Berkeley? In her hands, Georgia held a little red wallet she plucked from a red purse. Upon opening the billfold in the dim light of the basement, she'd realized the name and the student ID card sounded familiar, had been talked about in hushed tones for weeks inside her salon. Bud, barely looking up from the stovetop as his ginger-haired wife waved her find, dismissed her suspicion. That purse must belong to one of your girlfriends. Otto, however, sprang to his feet and rushed over. At some point, Bud's mother, Elsie Abbott, who also lived in the home, appeared in the midst of the commotion. She and Georgia chattered and passed the wallet back and forth, even after Otto, the only level head in this clutch of loons, suggested everyone stop handling it. Bud, too, eventually joined the buzzing trio in the hallway. It had been at least two months since Stephanie's story had last appeared in the newspapers, but Northern California wasn't yet the sanctum of serial killers it would come to be known as in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. This child's disappearance was a gut punch to parents in the Bay Area. Her missing posters, now faded, still flapped on utility poles and street signs within 50 miles of her home. Otto suggested Georgia call the Berkeley police, and after finding the number in the phone book, she did just that. The group looked on, mouths agape as the name was confirmed to be that of the missing girl from Berkeley. When Georgia hung up, she looked around in disbelief, expecting her husband to be impressed now that they were sure. Bud Abbott, though, simply shrugged and made some mention of dinner becoming cold. By 7.30 p.m., police would be in the Abbott living room, listening to an animated Georgia recount the discovery, then explain how it could have come to be. The basement had been used as a polling place the month before, she told officers. Plus, they never locked the door that led from the outside into the cellar. Anyone could have come in at any time. Then there was the incident about a week earlier when she'd heard a thumping in the night. When Bud wouldn't get up to investigate, she did. At the time, she blamed the noise on her parakeet flapping its wings. But maybe it had been something else. Otto Desmond, too, was so engaged in answering questions that police thought at first he was George's husband. But no. Inspector Charles Amira would write in his report, the man of the house was that curious fellow on the couch, waif like Bud Abbott, who, after having eaten his steak when no one else could think of food, was now busily scratching answers into a crossword puzzle grid, bored by the drama unfolding in his front room. The inspector soon asked everyone the question that hung heavy in the room. Where were you on the afternoon of April 28th? Georgia said she was working at the salon two blocks from her home. Otto, as he recalled, had been away on business. Bud claimed he would have been en route to Trinity County, 300 miles north. The fishing season had been opening that next day, and he was headed to the family cabin in the mountain town of Wildwood to prepare it for the season. Satisfied for the time being, the inspector and most of the officers departed the Abbott home, leaving one officer behind to sit in his car all night. Inside, Bud and Otto began a game of chess. Otto later recounted in detail the strange night, about how he and Bud had started drinking, and how they spoke not a single word about what had been found in the basement, as they played game after game of chess until the sun rose. The next morning, the local police, accompanied by the FBI, arrived with papers giving them the authority to search the basement. 
Soon, the house was teeming with cops, some with shovels, who headed straight for the cellar. As Georgia, Bud, and Otto were being driven downtown for questioning, two officers began sifting through dirt beneath the basement stairs. It wasn't long before an FBI agent's spade hit pay dirt. Some eight inches into the sand, his shovel met an obstruction. The agent called another officer over before digging enough to pull out the object. As the dirt fell away, the name in the library book could be read. Sue Barton, Staff Nurse. Further digging uncovered a second book, Two's Company. Beneath that was a small booklet, on its cover a photo of a girl, her finger extended, a parakeet perched upon it. Within moments, two notebooks were also found, one bearing Stephanie's name, the other marked for French class notes. Then, they uncovered Steffi's blue-rimmed glasses. The cellar was silent as everyone around those digging stood frozen as each new item was unearthed. Then, most chillingly, and finally, they exhumed the only bra Stephanie Bryan had ever worn. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix, nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. As interviews with Bud and Georgia at the Oakland office of the FBI were winding down, officers got word of the discoveries back at the home. Agent Buchanan, who'd been questioning Georgia away from her husband, walked back into the interview room, announcing, Mrs. Abbott, we have something very serious to tell you. You better prepare yourself for it. Then he told her of the books, of the glasses, of the little girl's first and only bra. Georgia went white. In a flash of horrified clarity, she gasped. He must have done it. 
if they found that stuff in the basement. It was the only time Georgia would openly doubt her husband. Later, she'd even called the station to try to retract the statement. A rumor so away, Bud Abbott was casually answering questions. Scoffing at the need for an attorney, he declared at the start, I am perfectly willing to talk about this case because I have nothing to do with it. I never knew her, was never around her, had nothing to do with her, I had never heard of her, haven't the slightest idea of how all this stuff appeared in the basement, I've never seen the red purse or anything else of hers before in my life. I have nothing to hide. My conscience is clear. Let's get it over with. That's my attitude. Shoot the works. Bud then recounted in detail his whereabouts on the day of Stephanie Bryan's disappearance. As far back as he could recall about the day, he left Alameda about 11 a.m. to head to the family cabin in Wildwood. He drove an hour to Sacramento looking for the Bureau of Land Management on an errand for his brother. When he finally found the office and went inside, the Bureau proved to be too busy, so he continued on his trip, stopping for food and gas about 3.30 p.m. Then he again stopped to eat at about 5.45 in the town of Red Bluff. Bud told the investigators he arrived in Wildwood and had a drink at Cox Bar, just as it was getting dark. By the time he reached the cabin, it was 10 or 10.30 p.m., and he went to bed. The next day, a Friday, he said he spent drinking with a local at Cox Bar. On Saturday morning, he was joined at the cabin by his brother Mark and Mark's wife. The group returned home on Sunday. That's it. Nothing exciting. Just a guy tooling around on a weekend. For three hours, the agents grilled him on his movements. Then word came about the find in the basement. An agent filled Bud in on the development, then asked him directly, How do you account for it? Bud, whose recitation of events had been filled with hex and G-whizzes, maintained his golly G facade. This makes the whole thing more possible. Why would those things be buried and the other things put in a box? The agent's next question was sharp and cracked that mask ever so much. Burton, for the sake of the Bryan family, why don't you be a man and tell us what you did to the girl? Bud, no longer the mayor of Mayberry, hissed his response. I don't give a damn about the Bryan family. They mean nothing to me. Now, when do we eat? As the hours in the FBI interrogation continued, a contingent of law enforcement officers were converging on the cabin in Wildwood. The place already had an evil history. Seven years earlier, the man who owned it before George's brother had killed his roommate and quartered the body there. Then he buried the parts in separate sacks along the banks of Hayfork Creek. The locals called the place Butcher Boy Cabin. A nearby rancher's bloodhounds found the pieces after the killer confessed. Once again, the quiet mining community where suspenders and boots were formal wear was buzzing with men in suits. For four days, they searched the riverbanks, dug hole after hole in its swampy edge, walked the hills and brush a half mile on each side of the cabin. But their search came up empty. With all the resources of the federal government behind them, after turning over every stone, it was clear, investigators declared, wherever Stephanie Bryan was, she sure wasn't here. The abduction of the shy ninth grader was big news in the Bay Area. When Stephanie disappeared, no less than four major newspapers carried daily stories about the case. When those damning items were located in the Alameda basement, reporters came clamoring back around. Once again, the Brian's sorrowful plight became fodder at breakfast tables across the nation. It was such big news, in fact, that editors at each of the large papers the San Francisco Examiner, San Francisco Chronicle, Oakland Tribune, and Sacramento Bee were surely searching for ways to get a scoop. The Bryans had been open to talking to the press. They believed the publicity would help them find their girl. Georgia and Bud Abbott gave interviews as well, inviting photographers and reporters into their home. Georgia dramatically recounting her discovery, posing for the photographer, making sure the light was just right to catch a glint of her copper tresses. Bud wasn't nearly as interested. Sure, he was cordial, he was adamant they were not involved, but this was someone else's problem, not his. 
Editors at the San Francisco Examiner must have known a scoop wasn't likely to come from either of those places. A fresh angle was needed. And they had just the man for it. Ed Montgomery. A former Marine, Montgomery had earned a reputation as a dogged reporter. He'd won the Pulitzer four years earlier for a series on tax fraud and was a capable wordsmith with an insatiable appetite for scoops. The deliciousness of the cabin's devilish history was too much to pass up. He and a photographer were assigned to go to Trinity County, talk to the locals, and dig up, if you will, whatever they could. A chartered plane took Montgomery and a photographer to the mountains. Then the journalists and the pilot walked in the sweltering July heat to the nearest town of Hayford. On pure luck, a stranger rented the men his only car. Fifteen miles later, the trio were in Wildwood, at Cox Bar, Abbott's alibi for the day after Steffi's disappearance. Abbott claimed to have stopped there the night of the disappearance, but Montgomery had heard that the owner, Delbert Cox, had no recollection of that. Cox said he would have remembered Bud being there, because business was so slow at the time. But the bar owner wasn't in just then, so the men went on to the Abbott cabin. Montgomery wrote in his dispatch two days later that even with nightfall approaching, they could still make it an unhappy reminder of the cabin's dark past. The name of its former murderous owner, Lloyd Schneider, burned into a door plank. A quick walkabout revealed little. They noted heaps of earth along the riverbank, evidence that police and FBI agents, whose search had ended hours before, had dug up the land in a hunt for the girl. It was as they rounded the back of the cabin, preparing to leave in full darkness, when something briefly captured Montgomery's attention. Both the pilot and I caught it at the same time. A whiff of something dead. It was stiflingly hot, and only a suggestion of a breeze. Yet the smell came and went almost before our nostrils had time to record it. The three men drove their borrowed car back to Hay Fork to spend the night in a hotel. Before hitting the sack, they learned from some locals about Harold Jackson, whose bloodhounds had success finding the cabin's first victim a few years before. Jackson was a no-nonsense good old boy. The former sheriff's deputy was a skilled mountain lion and bear hunter. When he wasn't bailing alfalfa at the crack of dawn on his 10-acre ranch not far from the Abbott cabin, he was running a caterpillar for Trinity County. By the time the reporter tracked down the former lawman the following day, Jackson was already into his shift for the county. He told the man he'd be glad to run his bloodhounds around the Abbott cabin. Heck no, he would take no money for such a sad task, but it would have to wait until his work was done. So back to the Abbott cabin the trio went to wait for 6.30 p.m. Right on time, Jackson appeared, accompanied by his dogs Spot and Shorty and his hired hand, M.F. Coleman. After proudly boasting about the skill of his dogs, they had, after all, found the butchered body of that poor old drunk Ray Latham. The rancher cut the bloodhounds loose. This odd collection of investigators, Jackson and Coleman aptly dressed in dungarees and cowboy hats, Montgomery, Bryant, and Kelly sporting suits and fedoras, chased after the hounds as they raced along the banks. For 90 minutes, the howling dogs worked with purpose as Jackson ran them through the rugged terrain along the now pitted banks of the creek fronting the cabin. Then, with the sun once again slipping from the sky, with not a single clue found, the men decided to call it a day. As an afterthought, Montgomery mentioned the tang he and Kelly smelled the previous day. The stink of death is simultaneously sour and sweet, thick and acrid. It smells sticky, makes you shake your head recoil. While the pungent odor of dead animal can be mistaken for human, the reek of decaying human flesh cannot be mistaken for animal. At 8.15pm, the newsman pointed across a road that ran behind the cabin, so Jackson pointed the dogs there. Suddenly, both hounds stiffened, their muzzles lifted to the west, their bodies trembling with excitement, nostrils wide. They've got something, Jackson said. They've caught a real smell. They sure have, Coleman agreed. And it's coming from a distance. See, their heads are up. That's not a trail or their noses would be on the ground. Shorty and Spot pulled at their leads until Jackson cut them loose once again. The dogs crossed the road, bolted up the hill, all but their cries disappearing in its tangled manzanita. The men followed, stumbling, panting through the thicketed hillside. 
Puffing to the crest of the knoll, some 300 yards from the cabin, the group found the dogs pawing at the ground in the shadow of a tall sugar pine. The red clay earth showed signs it had been molested by wild animals. And out of place, in the wild lands of Northern California, a patch of turquoise cloth, its edges fringed by the chewing of pack rats, lay nearby. And even more out of place, protruding slightly from the ground, was a brown and white saddle shoe, still encasing a buried girl's foot. After 84 days in a lonely grave, where only the great pines bore silent witness, Stephanie Bryant had been found. With shovels mined from the cabin basement and Montgomery racing to Wildwood in that borrowed car, Jackson began the delicate work of digging out the stolen girl. Less than a foot of dirt covered the decomposed body. After removing a spade or two of soil, strands of Steffi's dark hair appeared. A couple more spades exposed a blood-stained garrote twisted around her neck. What was left of her mouth was sealed with tape. Before long, Jackson was joined in the exhumation by lawmen. With each shovelful tossed to the side, more of the horror was uncovered. The body was topless. Blood stained the once white petticoat still tied around what was left of the waist. Beneath was a tattered turquoise skirt. She was lying on her left side, her knees drawn up, her arms and hands raised in front of her face, as if to ward off blows. A medical examination the next day would reveal the depths of the brutality. I found multiple depressed skull fractures. She was struck on the back of the head, either with a dull two-pronged instrument or twice with a single instrument. Two holes, about two inches in diameter, went through the skull. The head injury was the likely cause of death, but the pathologist said he couldn't rule out strangulation. Because of the decomposition, it was impossible for the doctors to determine if the girl had been sexually assaulted, but considering how she'd been discovered, it seems rather likely. The child's bra had become someone's trophy, and her underwear, cut from her body then twisted into a garrote, was now knotted around her neck. Clues as to when the burial took place were found in the way the dirt caked around the body, making fossil-like imprints of the skirt and leg. Investigators surmised that the hole had been dug in the rain before someone marched this child up the hill to her death. The rain had turned the exhumed dirt to mud, and that mud was then used to hide the deed. There had been no rain in May, June, or July. For three months, the hot sun baked the earth into a hardened adobe cast, that sheathed the body. After Montgomery's alert to law enforcement, then to his newsroom, another examiner-reporter headed straight for the Abbott home. The family was there, along with Abbott's brother, his mother, and Abbott's newly retained attorney. After the reporter broke the news of the discovery, the typically subdued Bud Abbott was incredulous. I don't know anything about how the body got there. I don't know anything about it. I'm still staying with my story. It can't be true. Georgia grabbed her distraught husband's hand as tears welled in his eyes. In the four days since Stephanie's things were found in the basement, the reporter noted this was the first time the inflappable Abbott showed any emotion beyond disinterest or disdain. In those four days, he'd sat through at least 15 hours of interrogation, even submitting to a lie detector test, the results of which an investigator would later say was the chart of a guilty man. Over those four days, Bud told and retold of his route to the cabin that Thursday when, it was clear now, a little girl died, how he'd stopped at Cox Bar when he arrived, how he returned the next day to drink the hours away, how his brother Mark and Mark's wife came up the day after that, how the three caravan back that Sunday with Mark in the lead. Abbott even mentioned he'd driven home alongside Franklin Canyon Road, the place where Stephanie's French book had been found. With the body now discovered, the curious holes in Abbott's story began to widen. For instance, what was with that crazy nine-hour route north he claimed he'd taken for a six-hour drive? Why didn't he ever include the fact that he passed through Berkeley, proven to be the case when a gas station receipt showed he'd stopped for gas near there? During those four days, Abbott eventually admitted that he lied about going to the land office in Sacramento, explaining he'd only added that to his story because he didn't want his brother to know he hadn't attempted the chore asked of him. 
And he was confronted with never telling police that he'd driven back down Franklin Canyon Road the day after he got home from the cabin. Police had to force that information out of him after a second gas station receipt showed he'd been there that day too. This second trip on Franklin Canyon, prosecutors would later suggest, was because Abbott wanted to get back the French book he'd thrown from his vehicle the night before, except he was too late. It had already been found and transported to a boy's locker. He denied statements by customers of Pring's Donuts, half a block from Stephanie's middle school, who said they saw him there on the day she was stolen, though he admitted he frequented the shop on other occasions, sometimes twice a day. After the brief show of emotion upon hearing the girl's body had been found, Abbott quickly dried his tears as he drew his attorney aside to profess. My mind is blank as far as this is concerned. It's a complete blank. But the exchange between the men was interrupted. Alameda police had arrived to take him away. Abbott, looking ghoulishly thin, soon arrived at the jailhouse, where he posed for pictures. Through a coyly curled lip, he declared for the press, I'll admit it looks black for me, but I didn't do it. Murder cases in the U.S. often take years to wind their way through the court system. Some make it to trial in just one year, with jury selection or opening statements often coincidentally taking place on or about the anniversary of the killing. In others where the death penalty is being sought, it's not unusual for a defendant to spend two or three years behind bars awaiting trial. But in 1950s America, cases moved quickly. For Bud Abbott, his day in court would begin with jury selection. Three months and 18 days after his arrest, 26 days after what would have been Stephanie's 15th birthday, 194 days from the time the Bryans kissed their eldest child goodnight, he was to be tried for his life. At a news conference from the county jail days before jury selection was to begin, a smug abbot told reporters, I am absolutely confident I will be acquitted. I am completely innocent. In his opening statement, the DA, J. Frank Oakley, offered some surprises to the jury that hadn't yet been in newspaper articles or in our story here. Oakley told the jury that the day after Abbott returned home from the cabin, he went to the Veterans Hospital and demanded admission in order to build an alibi. The prosecutor said medical records would prove that Abbott had been free of tuberculosis for more than two years, and he was hardly a, quote, respiratory cripple. The doctors would testify he could find nothing wrong with the insistent man who, in the past, had been reluctant, often combative, about treatment. Jurors also learned that in addition to the two people from Pring's Donuts who said Abbott left there at 3.30 p.m. on the day of Stephanie's abduction, other witnesses saw Abbott's car run a red light in the direction of the Hotel Claremont about the time she was last seen. The DA told of how the red clay found on the soles of Abbott's boots was identical to soil found nine inches deep in Stephanie's grave. The prosecutor said that jurors would hear from a criminologist about fibers from Abbott's car that matched Stephanie's sweater, slip, and turquoise skirt, that dark hair is found on the back seat closely matched Stephanie's hair. Most hauntingly, the criminologist would tell the jury that he found blood deep in the nap of a rear floor mat that had been scrubbed thoroughly by someone before police seized Bud Abbott's car. The prosecutor theorized that after Stephanie's purse was turned over to police, Abbott rushed down to the basement to hastily bury the other items, accounting for sand investigators found in Abbott's loafers that matched the sand beneath the stairs. Over 24 days of testimony, the prosecution offered 69 witnesses who meticulously built a case against Abbott. Among those was Mary Bryant, who not only recounted her daughter's last day, but identified the bra she'd bought for her and Steffi's glasses, found buried in the Abbott basement. Mrs. Bryan also had the agonizing task of identifying her daughter's clothes. The spoiled items arrived in the courtroom in a box that, when opened, filled the room with the pong of death. As a result, some spectators covered their faces and exited the gallery. The jury, however, were forced to withstand the stench. In his defense, Abbott's attorney presented 26 witnesses, the 12th of which was Burton Abbott himself. 
Abbott, who'd smirked and took notes from the defense table throughout the trial, strode confidently across the courtroom and took a seat in the wooden chair of the witness stand. His silly little mustache was gone, having shaved it off, no doubt in one swipe, before the trial started. He appeared relaxed in a dark suit as he casually crossed his legs and left his hands to hang limply over the arms of the chair. His attitude at first was one of patient good humor, flashing a frequent schoolboy's grin, easily answering no to questions posed by his defense attorney about seeing Stephanie, knowing Stephanie, killing Stephanie. The defense pointed out in carefully crafted questions how sickly Abbott was, how it would be impossible for him to carry the dead body of a girl just 25 pounds lighter than he, up a slope as steep as the one she was found buried on. Spectators would later describe Abbott's behavior as odd. His manner of speech was precise and mincing. Reporter Montgomery recounted later that his words came out as, quote, slow and almost too distinctly like a speaking class student told to use his lips and articulate carefully. End quote. To explain the mud on his boots, Abbott said he'd been to the cabin in June and stood on the hill for target practice, not far from where the grave was found a month later. The fibers in his car, he said, came from fly fishing lures. The changes in his story he blamed on lapses in memory. The cross-examination by Oakley was more intense at times devolving into a bitter back and forth between Abbott and the career prosecutor. The DA drilled down on the lies Abbott told of his travels, on the indifference Abbott showed about the whole matter, on the way Abbott played the part of an invalid, but how he was, in fact, fit enough to carry brick after brick to build a backyard patio or walk miles along the rutted banks of Hayfork Creek, fishing. Who won the battle of wits between the two would be left up to a jury of seven men and five women. In all, Abbott spent four days in the witness stand. It took the jury nearly twice that long to reach a verdict. After seven days of deliberation, Burton Abbott was found guilty of kidnapping and murder. The jury determined Abbott must pay with his life. The gas chamber in California's San Quentin prison promptly underwent a maintenance check. Just as trials were swifter in 1950s America, penalties were lightning speed too. Decades of condemned men and women waiting on death row while appeals made their way through the courts hadn't made an appearance in the U.S. Abbott made several appeals to get his sentence thrown out or commuted to life. His appellate attorney, George T. Davis, was relentless. As the clock marched on, Davis tried a series of unsuccessful legal acrobatics. The death date was set for 10 a.m., March 15th, 1957, 22 months after Stephanie's life was ripped away. With two days to go and a final request for a 60-day stay of execution denied, Davis's co-counsel flew to Washington, D.C. to make an in-person plea to the U.S. Supreme Court. Four of nine judges must vote to accept a case. Five out of nine must vote to grant a stay. But the full court was in recess and would not reconvene in time. A day before the execution, Abbott's mother and brother visited him. Georgia, too, spent just under the hour allotted to her, alone in the cell with her bud. During that time, she signed a macabre consent form at Bud's request that his body be donated for research. On the day Abbott was to be put to death, his attorney's last hope to save his client's life was a direct plea for a stay to California Governor Goodwin Knight. Knight was not in Sacramento at the governor's mansion on this day. Instead, he was boarding an aircraft carrier in Oakland for a reception. Miraculously, in this time before cell phones, the lawyers were able to reach him before the ship set sail. The governor granted a one-hour stay. During that borrowed time, Abbott's attorney made a last appeal to the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which was denied. Shortly after 11 a.m., the now 29-year-old inmate was taken from a cell behind the death chamber where he'd eaten his last meal the night before of... Jumbo shrimp, ravioli, french fries, and chocolate cake. Wearing blue jeans, felt slippers, a white button-down shirt. Abbott, now 20 pounds heavier. Not as a result of that last meal, but meals before, I'm assuming. Walked unaided to the glass-enclosed octagonal death chamber to pay a murderer's debt. 
He took a seat in the apple green chair at 11.15 a.m. Fifty-nine people stood in dim light on the other side of the glass to bear witness. His attorney again tried to reach the governor, now at to sea, but the ship-to-shore radio was occupied. When Davis finally got through, the governor agreed to another hour's stay and called his clemency secretary, Joseph Babbage, telling Babbage to contact the prison. With the eyes of nearly five dozen reporters and spectators upon him, Abbott, his own eyes moist, his lip quivering ever so slightly, was strapped into the chair. A tiny smile crossed his lips when he answered the question, Are your restraints comfortable? It's all right. A long stethoscope was taped to his chest, its earpieces leading at the door. As the death vault clanked shut, was Abbott thinking of Stephanie? Would he have been interested to know that some 60 years later, based on little more than fantasy, conspiracy theorists would peg the Berkeley girl's murder on the serial killer Edward Wayne Edwards? Edwards would also be blamed with the same non-evidence for the deaths of the Black Dahlia, the Zodiac killings, and JonBenet Ramsey, among others. Was Abbott thinking of his wife and son? Georgia would change both her and her son's last names, remarry a wealthy cattleman in Texas, get divorced and die in 1995 at the age of 74. His son Chris would grow to retire from the military, become a father of five and grandfather to three before dying at age 63 in 2015. Eleven years earlier, his grandmother Elsie, even on her deathbed in 2004 at the age of 100, would maintain her son was innocent, saying publicly she believed her own brother had framed him. Stephanie's father, Dr. Charles Bryan, would die suddenly of a heart attack in 1958 at the age of 47. His wife Mary would join him 25 years later. Both parents were laid to rest in a Minnesota cemetery next to their girl. Three weeks from the execution date, Butcher Boy Cabin would be burned to the ground by drunk loggers trying to exercise evil from their mountain oasis. What was Abbott thinking after being strapped into the chair? Was he wondering how on earth he ended up in this place? Or was an overconfident psychopath who ripped a girl from this world, abused her, defiled her, then smashed in her pretty little skull, incredulous at the injustice that had befallen him? At 11.20 a.m., the mute silence of the death chamber was broken by the peal of a telephone. Warden Harley Teets stepped into the corridor, picked up the receiver, and found the governor's man, Babbage, on the line. Has the execution started yet? The warden took a deep breath before replying, Yes, it has, sir. Ten minutes earlier, 16 one-ounce sodium cyanide crystals were mechanically lowered into a cocktail of distilled water and sulfuric acid. Neat. Just before the hiss and fog of the chemical reaction began to fill the room, Abbott, either in reflex or vanity, took a deep breath and held it. Can you stop it? The governor's man asked. The warden glanced into the death chamber from where he stood. It would take at least 90 minutes for the gas to dissipate before the door could be opened. No, sir. It's too late. The lungs that had failed Bud twice before, first in contracting tuberculosis and last in failing to provide an alibi for murder, just couldn't hold that last breath. Long enough. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Welcome to Prime Video's Culture Rated Collection. This is the place where black is the main character, where we don't jump through hoops just to hear our voice and can fall in love with illuminating documentaries like Giannis' The Marvelous Journey. I'm just a hard worker that's trying to survive. Enjoy the animated series, The Second Best Hospital in the Galaxy. All doctors report immediately. Where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Welcome home, baby. Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. I want my music to unify people. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop. This is the cleanest police car I've ever been in in my life. And BMF. You're about to take over the whole nation. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details.